0: But, but no. <laughs> I'm very
1: relaxed as you can tell. Yeah. You're still doing your NRL stuff,
2: yeah. Yeah, we uh we got a coach course on Sunday, so we're running um mod games and international games coach for, for new coaches, so which is always good fun. I like teaching,
1: they don't have any effect like because uh Queensland is pretty much back to normal, isn't it, with sporting stuff oh. in, in relation to COVID
2: yeah it sort of is but the problem is NRL we lost our um, we all lost our jobs um, because of COVID, but we got put on that job figure that job keeper thing and uh, which works I, I don't mind but I got another job with Hewitt teaching Hewitt with um, ERGT who run all the Hewitt stuff on both so I got a job with them and just cancelled my job keeper because I don't really need it you know that's someone else can use it on I can work.
1: And and Hewitt, for people that aren't in the Army, is drowning. It's resistance to drowning in a helicopter, hey?
2: Essentially, yeah. It's helicopter underwater escape training. And, you know, with the pool shut for a month and we had to use the lab pool and that was was probably about 18 degrees the other day when we jumped in. And me and cold water don't mix well. Um, And water beads off me anyway. But that was just another experience going in with a three mil witty and it's that cold. It was ridiculous. I, I froze my ass off.
1: No I I, uh, <laughs> I was a red hat, you know how many hats you go was it red hats for you little panicking little bitch,
2: yep, red hat to be panicked, and it was uh it's yellow oh. hats if if you are you know feeling all right about it all.
1: I wore two red hats.
2: you would have been the one like the other day they as soon as we went on the water, he forgot to take a breath and just panicked, like he you could hear him too like. <laughs> on the water and his arms and legs going everywhere and we just hit the straps and get him out of there and I'm like okay bro just calm down um take a breath not on so the water <laughs> obviously a couple of weeks ago they kept trying to take a breath when he come up to the surface he'd breathe in as his head broke but his mouth was still under and swallow some water and come up I'm like dude that's the third time you've done that mate can you can you like calm down and take a breath at the surface not under it and he's like Oh, I'm very sorry, mate. (coughs) I'm like, that's okay, man. Like, just just listen, bro.
1: (laughs) Is there still the generalisation that um, um, Asians and black people can't swim? (laughs) And is that true with bloody Hewitt still or no?
2: Yeah, I think the surprising thing is the amount of young guys from the battalions that have never swum before at the moment. They're all young and fit and keen, but they've never swum in the ocean, they've never swum in a pool. Like the, you know, one of the boys was teaching people how to swim the week before the course. That's that's the scary part of and, and you know what? Ninety percent of them are coming from Amphib too, area. So it's <laughs> that's the scary part is these young fellows are keen and they're they're awesome kids, but if if you can't swim and you're in an Amphib battalion and, you know, you're gonna be in the water a lot.
1: You know. uh, oh. uh, one of the boys from one he cannot swim user actually swap cam shirts so his name he'd give someone else his cam shirt so he'd go and do it and he'd just write his details down because he fucking drowns straight up it's like emergency yeah, ascent we
2: saw that list that had mixer on there we never saw you <laughs> down there but <laughs> your no, shirt pants are a few times.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh i mean that's what that's what you're doing now but i mean this all come about You've had uh, quite a what's the word for it? Long, prestigious career in the army. Let's go with that one.
2: Oh, long career. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think prestigious is the word. I think for me, it's. I had a career where I loved every bit of it, and I wasn't scared to speak my mind when I didn't agree with things, and. I served with some incredibly brave human beings um, and some good humans that just treated you with respect no matter who you were and what, what unit you belonged to or, or what core badge you had. Um, and I think, you know, I did I did 18 years um, and I really wanted to get to 20, but the last six months I was finishing my union, and going into work and it just, it just wasn't the right type of place for me to be in. Um, it had changed a fair bit, you know, from from when I joined and it just wasn't right for me as a person and I had to make that decision and make it a clean cut because for me negativity is not good for me in my life. You know, I don't need to be getting dragged down all the time by people that can't find the good in stuff. I don't need to be um, around people that think that their shit doesn't stink because they've got more rank. Um, I think the most enjoyable part out of my career being a medic is I got to interact with Heaps of cool people in heaps of different units, and they don't have that opportunity anymore. Uh, and coaching like rugby, I joined the army to play rugby and to meet women. Um, and uh, I was doing all right until not, I got <laughs> Yeah, I was going good until I got the to Townsville and Tam walked out of the RFP, and I was like, oh, "Fuck, you're in trouble here, mate. You need to move." And I couldn't move. And um, rugby, I I didn't make it to army like old sats here, but. Um, I got to work with Army, and I got to coach him when he was at One RAR, and uh, got to coach you, Max. And I mean, you weren't too bad. Like,
1: I had no idea. I had no choice. I was living with Sutter uh, Azru. Were you Azru captain? <clears throat> Sutter. Uh, microphones off, Sutter. Got <laughs> um, to have a hissy fit. Yeah, he's. Got- <laughs> That's right. Um, so of the, of the 18 years you do remember, there are a couple of minutes that you don't remember for fucking extreme reasons.
2: Yeah. Uh, 2011 we were in Afghan and, um, and, you know, as a medic and as a sergeant, it's rare to get into those positions where you're a company medic, where you're looking after 150-odd soldiers and from all different calls. Um, and I... You know I, I was privileged and, and grateful to get that opportunity to be part of the company medic world again um, being a sergeant because you're more an admin at that stage I think you you start looking after more people and you start running you know doing a lot more planning and not much time out you know on hands on the job um, and on the 13th of August in 2011 we we had a patrol out uh, I was at home I just set up my new laptop that um, time had sent over and I just I was talking to her on the phone. And uh, there was a massive explosion from where the boys were patrolling and I said, Tam, I've got to go. Got, I think I've got a job here. So I went outside and, you know, we reacted pretty quick and when we got out there, there was a vehicle that had been hit by a, um, an improvised explosive device. I know that there's a you know bit of angst about people using the word IED because it can, um, you know, people say it triggers them. But for me, if, if we're not real about things, we're just going to push stuff around. And not actually address issues, so yeah, man, it enables people's.
1: I, th- I think you, trigger warnings <clears throat> and all that stuff enables people to continue their victim mentality. It's like, mate, you've got to get through it. There's no point, and, and yeah, we don't do trigger warnings and shit. Like that's ridiculous. I think, mate. We'll you see. Got it's, to grow it's, a, it.
2: it's it's avoidance too, you know. Like that's something that we learn when we go through PTSD. Is you is you should do things to avoid um, avoid attacking issues. But, you know, that day went – it was going pretty good. I, I ended up on the gun. I was the only one in our vehicles. I was on the rear gun, um, and I love being up there because I like, I like being able to see So around. combat
1: medic sergeant as a rear shooter.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> killing it. Um, I t- tell you what, the knee-jerk reaction after that, no medics on the top gun ever after that. They just they just canned it. I'm like, in Iraq, we didn't have a choice. to. You either went out there and did your job or they wouldn't take you. So, you know, we we'd picked up. All the engineers and stuff from the car and the infantry boys, and then we turned around. We had about oh, 1,200 meters to travel to get back to our patrol base, our patrol base Wally. We went about 200 meters down the road, and I remember because um, I just pulled, I pulled the butt into the weapon close, so I could lean over the side to look along the road, and um, and that's something that I'd learnt in Iraq. You. You scan and your weapon follows you wherever you scan and then you check the edge of the road because if you can see, you, you'll pick stuff up if you look on the side of the road and the palms are awesome at teaching us that. So I, I tucked the weapon in. I remember looking down and got to my rear wheel where I would standing at directly over the top of and I just I just remember this massive big blinding white flash um, and then three shadows standing over me and then... Um, uh, a good friend of myself in Taz, Bernie, who was also a medic and she was in the research. I remember her giving me a kiss on the cheek. And then, and then I remember being, um, seeing my other mate, Christy McNaught, who, who was in, uh, Kandahar. Kandahar. Yep. And then I woke up in Germany. So there's, there's a whole sort of period there where i I'm hazy over what happened, but the boys fill me in pretty good. So, um, I wasn't actually found. I've got video where I wasn't actually found. Like, they didn't realise that I was hurt until nearly eight, nine minutes after the actual blast happened. They saw me on the side of the road with a huge circle of blood and line on my left side. and um, They had no working mine labs, and Ty Rotter, who was the Explosive ordnance Disposal dude, good mate, came around the corner and searched a path to me, and they got to me and said that my left boot was near my head, my left arm they couldn't see because underneath my left leg my right hand the top half of the hand was folded over the back and um, I was you know, moaning and, and screaming in pain um, and they had me on the ground there for nearly two hours before they could get a medic out to me and once they got the medic out to me he had me for six minutes he said the first two minutes I was answering questions and asking him what's happening what's happening like what happened and then he said there was nothing and he checked and I was I was dead for four minutes um they loaded me on the chopper i was dead for another four minutes and spontaneously woke up we landed in tarenk and they put me on the table and five hours on a recess table to to square me away and then i went into surgery for 11 hours um died in surgery and came back out of that they brought me back which is pretty awesome and then on the plane flight to germany from kandahar I died and we did an emergency landing at Bagram Airfield. And me and an American bloke that had died got rushed into surgery and brought we'll, we'll back again and then landed in Germany. And that was the 15th of August, um, 2011. And I woke up on the, I went straight to surgery. Um, woke up on the 16th of August on my birthday with the head surgeon saying, How you going? Happy birthday. Um, and I said, Who the fuck are you? And then I looked to my right. And my old RSM and one of my old CSMs, Richo, was sitting there and I looked at him and sort of went, what the fuck are you doing here? And in my head, I was like, if you're supposed to be in Dubai and I'm in Afghanistan, what are you doing here? And he goes, do you know we are, Coco? And I said, no. Nah. And everything was white. And he said, you're in, you're in um, Landstuhl Hospital in Germany, mate. You got blown up. And I was like, well, fuck that. <laughs> okay. That's interesting.
1: So, uh, so, how many times did you fucking die?
2: Three. <laughs> fucking. Hell. Yeah. Is it, is it,
1: and is there anything on the other side? Are, are we in no, trouble? it's all or?
2: black. Nah, yeah. It's all black.
1: It's not There's, white. You know,
2: I, I, I don't begrudge anyone that sees lights or anything like that. I, I don't say that they're making it up because, you know, you, you see what you see. And I think your beliefs will push you away to see what you see. But for me, it was all black, which I was comfortable with, um, obviously. <laughs> but, um, I think there's got to be a part of you somewhere that is not going to give up. Uh, and I don't know why I'm still here. Like that's that's one of the questions that still baffles me today is, you know, and I carry survivors guilt really heavy because we you know, we've lost good people um, and seemingly for less things. Um, and I, you know, still struggle with that concept, and I'm still here. And you know, a lot of people say, then you must be a reason you're still here, and that's that's really good, you know, you can say that stuff. But at the same time, why? Like, you know, I can, I can roll, I can roll out of this, and and then watch people, you know, we love and um, cherish lose to smaller incidents you know battlefield incidents aren't really small per se but compared to an IED blast there's a lot of stuff out there a lot of people out there that we know that have been caught in IED blasts and uh you know I I still question that um especially around anniversary dates and stuff like that but at the same time I'm sort of grateful that I've had those experiences and I've been able to live um through those experiences because for me it makes it real and when i when I talk about stuff with my business, my speaking business, it it's it gives everyone like a full kick in the face when they whinge about how bad their life is because they, you know, the car broke down, they're running late for work, they got booked by the cops because they're speaking. All this shit that they whinge about, I just don't see the sense in it because I think, <laughs> what's the point? Um, you can either choose to live your life well and happy and fun or you can choose to be a negative I was gonna swear big time. You can choose to be a negative person. I was on a roll, nearly there. So I was gonna let it go. But you can choose to be a negative person, and then and live negative, and then have that as part of your life, and then try and find a way through things. But you're just gonna go into this cycle. So for me, it's more important that I try and have fun. I still have bad days. I still have. I mean, you mean you could talk to my kids, and be like some days, Dad's not here. Like he might be sitting on the couch, but he's not here. Um, you know that that's still. That's still relevant for me. That's still real, you know, and that's something I think we forget, that we're fixed, as fixed as we can be, but there's still going to be days that we're not here uh, because we're lost in our own thoughts. And I think, you know, businesses and employers, if if we get that understanding out to them that it's good to hire veterans because veterans have a different perspective, but some days they're just not going to be there. They'll get the work done, but you just won't be able to, you know, f- intervene and chat because they just lost in their own world and it's you know that's a real thing for me that's a that's something i live every day there's periods of my day that i don't remember like should my memory shit anyway like i'm 40 i'm 40 on the 16th of august but uh you know i don't remember what i have for breakfast some days by lunchtime that's just the way my head is now because you know brain injury and stuff like that but yeah you know it's different perspective on life, I suppose. I, I bring a different perspective on life. And I think, you know, by the time I'd met Sutts and that at one RER when I was coaching, I didn't. I wasn't the regular sort of coach that I think he'd experienced before. I didn't have that same viewpoint. I like to look at individuals and bring strength. I put Sutts in my leadership team in the first game he played for one RER, and he was shocked. But I don't think you realise that's how much you – exude leadership quality you know what i mean i think you're only realizing your potential now which is something that is a blessing you know because some people see that they've got leadership quality too early and they and they let it go to their head, the head but there's a reason why i put you in my leadership um group and you know you return that in spades but by, by being just a good human being and playing good rugby um and then off the field you're you're just a better dude so you know, I've got full respect for everything you're doing. I'm to get
1: to pretend, mate.
2: No, just... well, Max, I could talk about you, Max, but it wouldn't be, you know, nice for people to listen to me run you down. Oh, mate,
1: and it doesn't matter. <laughs> fucking... I started playing rugby and I, was... because I had no idea. I was like, yeah, I'll go play rugby. Sure. I was living with Sartre at the time. And then Rita was obviously fucking Azra as well. I'm like, well, we're going to learn today. Like,
2: fuck it. <laughs> I mean, you got good times and bad times. I think everybody, you know, there's a lot of veterans out there that have a negative relationship with military, but it, I mean, yeah, it's up to them how they view their military careers, and I'm not going to tell them that they can't have a negative, you know, negative recollection of, of things that happened to them and stuff like that, but, you know, I, I, I didn't, I don't believe in carrying grudges. If, if I had a problem with someone, I'd just tell them, which you know, a lot of officers didn't like, which probably stalled my career and kept me out of corporal for a long time. But yeah, but you, I, I so made you, it the same. you
1: also got you got the nurses' cross, right?
2: Yeah, nurses' cross is the highest cross. award you um,
1: get for
2: as a medic. Yeah, as a medic. Yeah, there it is. There, look, I'll put it up on oh. another camera there so people can see it, mate. So, um, it's
1: the other it's, camera. You man.
2: know, like it's. Um, oh, I, I I'm grateful because it. That day reminded me how quick things can go wrong uh, very quickly. But, yeah, it's it's one of the highest awards we can get as a medic. Um, they've stopped giving it out now. So I think there's 31 that have been given out total.
1: Well, they um, just went, no, I'm not doing it anymore.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of conflict with why medics were getting it because it was called a nursing service cross. And we said to them, well, because we do your job better, but, um, you know, there's – There's things (laughs) – it's true sometimes. There's some good nurses out there, but, man, I had problems with (laughs) someone. Yeah, it's – see, now they give a a distinguished service medal out, which uh, it sits a bit lower than where that – that's in the distinguished service cross-family, and I I disagreed with what they did with with giving them a lesser because I think medically we need to recognise that there's some things that – normal people can not solve and then you have these medics that come out of nowhere and just can do things that they, and they should be recognized for what they've done and how they've done it and you know I'm grateful that I got recognized for that for that day that that was a and that was mate. a high range you know that it was oh. it was like out of the blue completely um I don't know do you want me to tell you that story?
1: Yeah, send it mate. I want to hear the nurses cross man. 100%. So
2: I was working with B Squadron three four cap um, and we we're out on a we we're running a live fire range on one part of the range up at high range here and there was a um another troop they were doing some dry runs, blank fire runs down near keel Bottom. Uh and over the radio we just heard that there was an incident and there was widow makers in big trees and one of they brushed up against a widow maker and, and like When I say brushed, you couldn't have touched this thing lighter. Like they brushed up like a feather against it. They weren't, they didn't actually bump it. Or and like only the photos would do justice, or the people that were there that they would understand what I'm talking about. Widow makers are so like fragile, and you can bang them with a hammer and they won't fall. But then you can walk next to it, and the whole top half will come down on top of your head, which is why they call them widow makers. They're just dead trees.
1: That's what got DeLangan's brother. He was our Bush and a widowmaker dropped on his head.
0: Yeah, sure. No, different, different boat.
1: No, not DeLangan's brother. That passed away. Yep. He got he, there. So years before he got hit on the head. Oh, years before. His, yeah. Yeah. He crushed his fucking neck or, and he was leaking sp- um, spinal fluid into his neck. And I think that was a contributing factor, mate. Like, Fuck just me dead. Yeah, bro. It's fucking hectic. Well, Mate, he was driveway. Mate, missus found him.
2: It'll mess you up because you know he, the troop commander, had just come from tanks. He was a cool dude. Um, he's Captain Robertson. I can never remember his first name, but I remember his name and his face clear as a bell, and his fiance and his mum. Um, and he loved because being a tanky, no disrespect to tankies, I love them. Uh, and if you've got a good tanky commander or someone with a tank, you're going to sit behind it because. They don't have a thing where they get out and clear things like infantry. They clear by fire So he he was amazing. He would clear by fire. Oh, there's a gully to the left. Can you clear it? He just turn around and give it a burst with the 50 cal. cleared If, if well, fuck if you're sitting in that gully and a 50 cal gets shot through the grass, you're dead well, then that's cleared I suppose, but He was a bit wild and erratic sometimes with these clearances But he he was standing in the tree uh, the crew commander hatch and that tree came down and hit him on the top of the head like you it was freaky when I got there that the tree was still lying across the vehicle It was eight meters weighed about somewhere between 60 and 80 kilos um, and it was just all hardwood it was a it was just a big old hardwood tree and I just went to just because it didn't look heavy so I went to just brush it off the side of the truck other APC so I would get to the troop commander and <laughs> I went to push it and it wouldn't move and I was like. I just I had to get my weight behind her and really shove it off. And I'm like, we need to keep that tree. They kept the tree, they had it up on the gate at B Squadron, and they've got it up at the museum at, at the squadron there. But Um he was standing in in the hatch and I'd because you know, you listen to the radio and it was a bit of a debacle, the wrong grid got given out, there's no beer vehicle access, so no Land Rovers and stuff could get into where they were, but they sent my Sarge in a Land Rover with the trailer to go get him, and we we're on the range shooting. Once the range finished, we hightailed it. We we're an hour and a half away, and I was on the radio to the boys. I said, you yeah, know, just tell me what's happening, and they told me I said, take his helmet off. Um, and taking his helmet off is considered a massive no-no when you deal with neck injury. So I was prepared to take that risk, but he was complaining of so much pain in the back of his head and neck. I said, just take it off real carefully and talked them through over the radio. By the time we got there, we, we went past the grid that was given to our Sarge and he was just on the side of the road going, what the fuck's going on? So jump in and he jumped in the APC with us and we got around there and it was rough country getting in, um, real rough country. Like that bucket was banging around and we were getting clanged around. So we um, when I got there standing in the hatch and um, I said, are you right? And I brushed the back of his neck with my hands just lightly and he just about screamed and passed out. And I said, all right, we've got dramas here. A we pro and casualty with neck fractures. Um, we need to get him out of here, so I said I need a chopper. And we got onto range control so we need a chopper. And they said they rang Care Flight, Care Flight was out at Charter's Towers picking up a heart attack victim. No chopper, you got to road move him. And I said, I can't road move him, like we can't get out of here in a normal vehicle, and, and if we drive out, we'll kill him. And they said, no, you need to road move him to us and we'll have the Ambo meet us. And uh, I said, tell him to fucking get me a chopper from 5 because if we fucking move him by road, he'll die. And then range control, were a little bit got, like, you can't, you know, we've got to do this and I grabbed the radio and said, give me a fucking chopper. If we remove him by road, this guy will die. Give me a fucking chopper now. Um, so they got on the five ab five ab flew the chinook up, picked up some ambos at range control. They picked him up and and uh, we got him out safely, obviously. And then uh, about a week later, I got to go down and see him, and he had his, his C one was in three pieces, and the ligaments from his C two process um, were holding it together. And when I got to the hospital, I had the driver, Put Horton. Um, he actually runs Ironside Coffee. Put Horton. He does. They have an Ironside chat thing. Uh, he's a cool dude. We'll have to, we'll have to yarn him at some stage, but he was beside himself. He was blaming himself. I said, mate, it's it's not your fault. Like this isn't your fault. This shit just happened sometime. So he went in to see him and the surgeon was there and he came out and he was only in like, or a a development thing. And when that, he said, I've never seen anyone come in with that injury. He's seen three people with that injury. It's the first time he's seen anyone come in alive. And he said, what'd you do? And I said, uh, I just did everything real slow and carefully. We had a KED, the old Kendrick extrication device, the old um, green thing with you the track. We we'll use that. KED, man, like that big green thing that we usually have in the vehicles. That, and it's basically a, 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 a um, splint that sits down behind them and you buckle them in as tight as you can and they got a collar on and then you... You get their knees up basically in a 90-degree position and you lift them out. So we had to lift him out the turret, past the weapons, like we had to take guns out of the machine, everything. It was, it was a tough day but, you know, he, that was a cool day. So I went into the office uh, to his room after that and um, his wife was there and oh, his fiance at the time and his mum and she just gave me the big hug and he was sitting there with a big halo around his head, which is a big framework, and he was eating, eating bloody custard or something at the time and I was like, Holy shit, like I didn't think you'd pull out of this. And he goes, mate, I, I just woke up in hospital like this. And I was like.
1: <laughs> and he's all right, like, nothing, he's not a paraplegic or anything like that. No,
2: nah, he's not a paraplegic, mate. He, um, <clears throat> he side with full, full, but he, he had to drive a desk commander he couldn't, he couldn't, um, you know, be a crew commander anymore. So he, he went to Canberra. And I don't know if he's still in, uh, and if, if he's out there today and he gets to watch this somehow, um, or if anybody knows him, just, you know, I, I'm grateful that he's still here and grateful that he's still got function. And, um, you know, I I give kudos to him because he he was in a bucket load of pain and um, I couldn't give him pain relief and he just sucked it up. Um, Because it's a head
1: injury,
2: right? Yeah, yeah. So potential head injury, but C-spine, you know, like they say this thing, you know, um, C-3-4-5 keeps the body alive because all the nerves that run your lungs and your heart and stuff goes through three, four, five. 3 4 5 Um, and he's C1, everything from that C1 controls basically your head and, you know, runs the nerves and comes up into your face and stuff like that. So he was in a bad way and and I'm glad that, you know, that teamwork there, that the teamwork that we did that day got me that nursing service cross and that's something that I've always said that without my sergeant there, Chris Stindall, who's a big dude, like he's taller and bigger than me, and uh, he basically lifted um, a 90-kilo dude out of the top of the hatch by himself as I controlled him from underneath and then held him there until I got back out and climbed up on top of the vehicle. You know, that's – um and it was a special day, you know, when we got him out of there alive. So, you know, that's part and parcel of being a medic and, and um, you know, and I, I took that because my mates are there and, and they looked after us and, and we all helped each other out and that's what the Army teaches you is that teamwork and mateship will transcend everything that you go against.
1: Uh, and that was before – was that when you were at SACO before you went over to Afghan?
2: Yeah, that was 2000 and. Four. I had, yeah, man, we had six pro, yeah, six pro ones in the space of two years at B Squadron, and pretty bad ones too. Um, I learned a lot, you know. I think Team was good for me because I I was working with medics that had been around since Rwanda, somali days, and uh, they they taught me a hell of a lot about um controlling what you can control, um being in that moment and not being anywhere else, which you know we talk about. Uh, mindfulness I don't think people understand the strength that mindfulness will give you is where you focus on the one thing like in the meditation and stuff where you can focus on one thing and not think about anything else Um, I don't think people understand too that mindfulness doesn't have to be a candlelight or um, Kumbaya and stuff like that I think me and Adrian have, have debated this many times well we've agreed with it but we've debated with other people too but mindfulness is anything that takes your focus away from everything around you and puts it into one place. And for me, it's reading. Like I can read a book on a plane trip from here to Sydney or here to Brisbane, I'll, I'll punch out a book. Um, but it's good for me because it empties my head and I just concentrate on what I'm reading and, and the words on the page. Whereas for some people, it might be looking to that candle or I like watching the water too and fire. That's, you know, that's another way to do mindfulness for me. But, you know, we we can go through life and forget that, Simple things can be misconstrued um, as not having an impact on you, you know what I mean? Yeah, like I me watching my kids play takes my mind off everything. So, so
1: it's there's something special about medics and why they joined up to do it. And then it's funny because you see a lot of boys, uh, grunts who get out, a lot of grunts go across to become like an ambo or. A medic. or Paramedics, yeah, and they go across or they yeah. want to they transfer to be an actual medic. What yeah. was the draw, draw card for you? Was like, well, there's heaps, it's Albury, and or was there, a, was there like a higher? I mean, people, people, let's face it, we all join the army for the same reason, but, but, uh, and, and it's I don't not
2: know about you, but I, I drove for rugby and women, so that's, yeah, a tick, tick for <laughs> me, but <laughs> camaraderie, <laughs> we'll rugby and women. The hardest, man. hardest thing was my brother was infantry and my older brother was 51 RQR, um, up in the Gulf and and doing Norfolk stuff. So when I went to Kapooka all the sergeants knew my brothers and they are like, Oh sweet, so you're coming to infantry too, mate? And I was like, No. Nah. They're like, Why not? I'm like, Okay. Uh so I go to medical corps and all the women and go to medical corps and you go to infantry and all the men go to infantry. So I'm not seeing why you're arguing with me. And he was like, <laughs> he was like, get the fuck out of my office. And I was like, Gladly like you know, like, and, and right up until the last week, they were like, he had paperwork for me to call transfer. And he was like, come on, dude, like if you're half as mad as your brother, you you'll do really well in infantry. So, well, I'm probably madder than my brother, but I'm a lot smarter. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't noticed, I already, I put my case forward and I think I've still won. And he was like, fuck off. And, um, and I was like, then. And the draw card, I think, is I think the biggest draw card for people coming across the medical corps is you actually get something out of it. Uh, and you see the infantry boys nowadays, it's hard for them to transition into civil life because, and I'm not, you know, like you can do security if you want, or you can go work overseas, but some people don't want to do that. And um, until, until the army wakes up and go, uh, you know, start thinking about how to prepare people for uh, post-service, We're not, this problem's not going to go away. And it's a retention issue. Number one, it's a retention issue because if you want people to stay in, offer them something to stay in. And the second thing is you should be preparing them to get out of the army at the same level that they leave instead of having to go back at the bottom of the pile again somewhere. You know what yeah. I mean? So for me to come out and and I'm like I didn't get anything from my medical career because all the stuff that happened after we get diplomas and all that sort of stuff and endorsed enrolled nursing tickets, they sort of caught up with us and said, oh, yeah, you can have your endorsed enrolled nursing ticket and here's your certificate towards a diploma in paramedical science because the training's t- changed. So I got out of the army and I had nothing from my medical career. So 18 years, the only thing I had was frontline management um, and, and some, you know, health and safety stuff. And I said, well, there's got to be something better. But now the kids are getting out with diplomas. Of paramedical science they're getting a endorsed enrolled nurse diploma so they can go straight into working at the same level or a higher level than what they came out a lot of them are doing uni as well so they're coming out as an RN or a paramedic and they're getting assistance to do that um, and I think that's awesome but infantry don't have that yet uh, and it's it's an archaic way of thinking uh, and I could brattle on about this for hours but I think the draw card for them to come across to medicals besides meeting beautiful women, I mean, let's face it. Medical calls full of them. Um, the and beautiful the draw men card too. is
1: no,
2: yeah. Tr- well, look 2020. at me. I'm a long drop of chocolate. Um, they <laughs> they actually get something back for what they put in, but it's also I think, a lot of the boys that I've seen go across have this. Because to do what we do, you've got to have this thing inside you that you want to help people get through life and you want to help them get over things and, you you know, you want to be that sounding board. So as much as I was a medic in Iraq and East Timor and Afghanistan, I was also like the sounding board for, for people to bounce ideas off, to discuss stuff that had happened on patrol, to, you know, vent about home life where, you know, spouses are just not coping well. So... I don't know if I slept much nights in Iraq because of that or I didn't because at the, I wanted to help them, but sometimes being in here is the best way to do it. And being a the medic, they trust you, and if they trust you, they'll talk to you. Um, so a lot of them boys that do come across from infantry, and I think the best thing – I've, I've spoken to the school about this too. If you have retreads, put them on the course. Because yeah, there's not only do a –
1: they, they put them at the they bottom
2: the Not only do they learn, they teach those young – medics that have just come off the street or out of school. They teach them about discipline. They teach them about, you know, how to party properly and get back at 7.30 in the morning, and go on parade. They teach them about all that stuff, resilience. It's the small things that you learn in your career that no one teaches you. They mentor, you know, that's the stuff that I see. And I go down to the School of Health and speak to new medics every year, about four times a year, apart from COVID. Um, but I also speak to new officers of the Corps too and, and uh, also the logistics Corps. So it's interesting to see the impact that ex-grunts have in those in those rooms, and I think it's the most positive thing that we ever did was let, you know, start making that a priority. Is giving people that have already been in the army serving, and a lot of these kids have have had really good careers, and they've served overseas, and they've got so much knowledge, and they get to drop that knowledge on new kids, and it's awesome. It's mentoring at right. best. I mean,
1: here's a, here's a current fucking topic for you, uh, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm protests. It's happening in the RL. Uh I think even the army come out and said that there's we've got to fix the racism problem in the army. Now I don't know if I can comment, but
2: I'll comment. I don't think there's a whole lot of racism from me. my Yeah. Well
1: go. Look. I wanna hear oh yeah, send it. Uh
2: if if anyone says that there's no racism in the army then they probably need a punch in the because it it does happen and it happened. I've had it, you know I've I've had, I've been called everything under the sun in my career, and I, I'm one of them people that I just don't tolerate that shit. So if I don't agree with that, I just tell people to get fucked. Um, get fucked. The thing we have to remember is that now I'm, um, you'll put this in a way that uh, I don't offend people, which I don't really give a fuck about either. Tell you the truth, so if they're going to be offended, they're going to be offended. But this is this is Coco's spin on it, um, and this is a bit of the darkness that's going to come out it because I think. We can afford to be real because we love each other like brothers and people are going to listen to us anyway and regardless of what they think of me, um, I'm going to speak some truth. Regardless of of the racism that I went through, it didn't make me or diminish me as a person or turn my light out or make me, a, you know, have I didn't carry grudges about that shit because it's based on people's perceptions in life and how they've been you know, taught when they grow up. That's that's the one thing I know about racism. The second thing is there's various forms of racism, and you know you can't just single one thing out and not acknowledge the rest. Do I believe that? You know.
1: So specifically, like during the art, like in your army yeah. career,
2: in my army career, like yeah, racist. I've been exposed to some real racist dudes. You know, when I was when I was at uh, actually when I was coaching you boys with one rr we played against Tuaria. There was an individual from Tuaria that um, wasn't from Australia originally and he, he didn't like black people and he openly showed that. You know, he wouldn't even shake my hand. And
1: Was that the McElhinney Shield, the one we were lost against Tuaria? I remember they said there was yeah. a double movement to, and uh, Black, yep. black Stevo. I'm not racist. This is a descriptor. <laughs> yeah. Old Man Stevo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He scored that final yep. try in the corner. And they were like, yeah it was a double movement yeah. or something. And like,
2: then they oh, knocked what? on the base of Scrum and what Score. What are talking about? Yeah, that game. So yeah. an individual from Tilaria, um and as an officer, I think you should carry yourself in, in at standards required by everybody in the Australian Army, not just your own. Um and he made it quite clear that he didn't like black people from the first moment I met him. Uh and he was, you know, he was he was my oc at the time. And he didn't shake my hand or acknowledge me. So I had a bit to say to him and it probably didn't help me in my career, but I'm I'm not going to stand for that shit. Um, but just because of my color.
1: Because this is coming from, this is coming from the King Panther and that's what the episodes titled is King Panther. Uh, and that comes from uh, the 40 days and the the black line, not the back line. Um, and like, we, we've got it all through it. Like, and, and and there's no, it's not right. like we still have the black line. 100 doing that, and that's now. not
2: racist, but you know, so all black. If you're going to be racist, you say <laughs> things with venom in your words. You know, there's a, and there's got to be something. There's got to yeah, steel man. behind it. You know, you you're saying things with that view that you're going to fight for your life because of your beliefs. And that's all fucking well and good. If you want to have a shot, I'll fuck you up. But the biggest thing for me is just because of my skin color shouldn't allow you to. Treat me differently. Um, no, you know, fuck no, never. In regards to racism in Australia, do I think there's racism in Australia? Yep. Do I think, uh, do I think that there's, you know, racism predominantly against um, uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders? I've seen it, so yes, I do believe that. But at the same time, I've seen I've seen what good humans, black or white, can do with an opportunity. Where they disregard that stuff and don't let it sit on their back, you know, like
1: yeah, because it's it's interesting, man. Because um, I mean, I must come obviously because I'm not black. I don't get I don't get the little innuendos or the back. Like I'm I must have like, to me. I've never seen it because obviously I'm white. No one's ever racist towards me, man. Yeah, right. But. Um, I mean, I've got – remember Muddy? We were in the Mad Cow, and the only time I've ever seen racism in the in, in Australia, I was like, racism doesn't – I was like walking around like, racism doesn't exist. It's fucking made up. And uh, this this white dude walked up to me, Sutter, and um, Muddy, who's yeah. – you know Muddy. Um, Give me Muddy. I can tell him try Black legs. as midnight. Yeah. <laughs> and walked up to us in the club, and he was like, oh, um, do you know this – Ex, he said, Do you know this black cunt, and I was like, and he was talking to me or Sutter, and I was like, we all thought he was each other's mates, and Sutter was like, he's not my mate, and I was like, fuck, he's not my mate, and we were like, oh, well. and then, and then he went to sleep, yep. and uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was a white person that put him to sleep. It was a white person that put him to sleep, and the cops, the bouncers, come straight in, and they chicken wing muddy out of the club. And then the cops were there, and they're, they're all standing around. Uh, and Muddy's like, I fucking didn't touch the guy. Like, you're under arrest for assault, blah, blah, blah. And I was about to put my foot in it, and Sutter was like, nah, man, let's just pop off because when they see the footage, they're going to realize it was not a black person that hit him. And sure as shit, and then from that point on, mate, I was like, fuck off. Yeah. There you go, it, mate. Look,
2: it, it does happen. As for... Uh, now, I've got, I've got really close friends, and, and you know what? I'll support I'll support stuff like that, but Black Lives Matter, in my opinion. Um, see, Australia's got its own problems with, you know, what happened to Aboriginals that we don't acknowledge. And, I, and I, you know, I understand that, you know, if we're going to do things right, we teach all history. You don't just teach, um, teach parts of history that you feel comfortable with. You've got to be open to, you know, everything bad and everything good. Which, as a country, we still don't do very well. But um, as for the Black Lives Matter stuff, yeah, you know what? There's there's stuff that happens in jails that between police and and um, you know indigenous individuals or black people. But the bigger picture is the the fact that I the biggest thing that I see that people aren't acknowledging is. Uh, Black-on-black black crime is one of the biggest factors in the U.S.
1: Um, it's fucking massive, it in, massive in Australia, too. Australia like, too. And it is massive in Australia, too. When we talk about up, what's happening in the community
2: People shut them down and call them hypocrites and stuff like this, but in order to solve a problem, you don't avoid it by just talking about part of it. You have to talk about the whole thing. And I've got some really, really good close friends in, in uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander life, uh, and I love them to death. And... I, I will support them wholeheartedly with whatever they need to do. But what I won't do is jump on a bandwagon where we
1: – Yeah, they- man, I don't think that's in question at all. And the, the fucking thing – but the thing that's pissing me off is Black Lives Matter is, is a fucking nuanced statement, mate. <laughs> well, it's like, yes, mate, Black Lives – like, we fucking oath, mate. But how do you fix a problem with leaders in the fucking community to, to stand up and, and do it? And if there's racism, stamp it out. Yeah, it's a, I community. Don't think,
2: it's a community. I've never seen condition. it as a co- – This isn't just – a black issue it's a community issue you know if you if you take color out of it all lives matter like lives matter you don't need to put a, a color in front of it to get your point across you know and yeah you know, i grew up and i'm half my white's on the inside like a coconut um my nickname's coco like you you could probably like i've been i've been told by heaps of people man they shouldn't call you coco that's racist and i'm like it's not fucking racist. It's my nickname that I've had since my first few days in the army. Like, we played against the English army squad that toured out here in 2000. And, um, in 2000. and I headbutted a pop from that team. That was beautiful. Um, and people call me Coconut because of that. Uh, and Kingy, who was the king of Tonga's son, he was overseas. with. He's from Tongan Army and he was doing, a, you know, he was doing an exchange sort of thing over here with us and he, he 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 got called fob um but we didn't take offense to being called fob or coconut or anything like that it's i think we you know we can we can talk about this subject for hours and have different opinions and everything like that but the bottom line is this black lives matter you know yeah i i i'm a big believer that everybody matters um and if we're going to talk about those issues that that they want to talk about, then we talk about all the fucking issues. We don't just talk about singular issues as part of the problem, and we don't blanket our coppers. Yeah, I think
1: because people just jump on. They, yeah, they jump onto a winning horse, mate, and they, you get people, and I'm sick. I'm I'm sick of white uh, activists, mate, jumping yeah. on and being like, I'm That's super it. woke because I think black people are. A bit, I'm like, yeah, fucking, I get racism shit too, bro. Don't try and make me to be a shit cunt because. Uh, you want to jump and go down a march and make yourself feel better. So there's there's, there's psychological egotism and altruistic behavior, and there's still an argument as to uh, whether true altruism exists and, and altruistic behavior is like, I'm going to help this old lady down the street because she needs a help crossing the road. Or inherently or uh, inceptually, are you helping her because you get a little fucking internal kick out of it and you get to go home and tell your missus? yeah, I, I help this old lady down the road. So, Or there's psychological egotism. And, and and the argument is those two things. And I think that true altruistic behavior, I don't think a 17-year-old latte sipping hippie is ultra woke enough and has gone through enough shit to have actual altruistic, you know what I mean? Like when you're in the trenches with these boys and you deploy with them and you are brothers and you don't see that sort of shit, like you don't see color and you can go, yeah, there's no rate on my.
2: Yeah, that's what I mean. It's. I it's, think that's different. I think that's your different perception. Fucking like
1: eighteen year old.
2: You know, like. I, yeah. I didn't get. I didn't get a handout or anything like that because I was black. I, I worked hard for everything that I have, and I think everybody's given the same opportunity to achieve what I achieved in my career, in my life. I think everybody gets that opportunity, but whether you take that opportunity or you use an excuse to say that you haven't got those opportunities, that's up to you. You know, like. You make your life how you want it to be. If if that if that's what you believe in, then it's not going to get you very far in all And I think that's where we lose the focus of the Black Lives Matter. I understand because I've seen it happen that you know that black treatment um, by cops. Some cops are really bad, and we yeah. you know we have yep. to weed them out. But you don't blanket everybody in that bunch because of one individual. Because we know good coppers. You know what I mean. Um,
0: yeah, I think there's fuckwits in every line of every line of work and every like all over the place. There's, there's individual outlying fuckwits, but I think the, the reason these kids are getting so involved in this protest stuff is for the same reason that, that racism exists in the first place. Like, I get I've, I had this conversation with Wazir actually on the piss last time I was with him, trying to break down like the, the spectrum of love versus fear. And everyone, used to, everyone goes around going, "Oh, it's love, hate. That's the spectrum. You love something, you hate something, or somewhere in the middle." But in reality, it's like you love something, someone, concept, or you fear it. And through fear, you, you develop hate, right? So like once upon a time, there was a lot of like general racism through society, it doesn't matter what country it was in. And most of that comes from the fact that people feared what well, they didn't understand. It's like if you're the most of the guys in the KKK, they don't have any black mates. They don't know anyone who's black. So they don't understand black culture. They don't understand black people. Therefore, they fear it. I mean, the, the problem we've got with the army is that's part of the propaganda machine, right, is, is to drive fear through racism to get people to want to join the army to fight an evil enemy, not always colour-based but religion, whatever it might be. So They kind of encourage the idea of yeah. developing fear in propaganda. And Anyway, going back, look, the, the kids these days that are rallying in these in these protests without having any idea of the facts, the stats, not knowing what they're doing, they just want to get behind a cause, Most of that's been driven by the fact that they now fear control by mass government, which is stereotypically old white men. And they're like, they're going, we don't understand capitalism. We don't understand the government. We fear it. We think it's trying to control us. So let's fucking burn it to the ground with hate. I'm like, that's kind of the same shit that's like underlying real racism. So we're going around in circles. Yeah, man. Just picking different. Different, different things to be. You know what? It's
2: easy. It's easy to misconstrue the good actions of what people are trying to achieve with this um, Black Lives Matter, and you know, the the core of the issue that they want to talk about in America. um, And I've seen Black coppers jump up and say, "Let's talk about this in an open and honest conversation." Yes, there is systemic issues in policing, but it's not everyone. It's individuals within certain places. Yes, there is systemic racism um, from you know from years gone by. That's you know that's and it filters through as we go through generational stuff. But a lot of that comes down to where you were brought up, how you were brought up, um, you know, the circumstances that you were raised in. But this is my thing: your living conditions when you grow up shouldn't dictate how you're going to turn out when you're older. So if you if you follow the the line of thinking that because um, you know my granddad and my dad and my uncles hated police because they they had this you know they just didn't like police I'm not going to like police um, I I haven't had bad run-ins with the cops so I can't speak for that side of it but what I have seen is the impact that bad cops have on good people um, and good neighbourhoods and good communities but if we you know if we it's the same thing in the army you know like if you want to talk about racism in the army you've got to talk about all of it you can't just talk about individual stuff that's happened that may have happened you've got to talk about all the bad stuff that's happened you've got to talk about all the racist accounts it's like sexual harassment if you want to talk about sexual harassment everything has to be on the table it's like bullying you know these bullying in the army is prevalent because we've seen it, and and you can be around it, but if you want to stamp it out, everything has to be on the table. So if we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter and racism, everything has to be spoken about. You can't just choose to not talk about that argument because you don't want to bring that up. You know what I mean,
0: mate? There's you, the military's got a lot of problems, right? But it's that complex. I don't think you can solve them. Like if you're we, we're slightly evolved monkeys and you join the military and they train you to knock off your logical thought process and become that monkey again, beat your chest real hard and become the biggest dick in the room because you've yeah. got to go and fight bad dudes. And so that's kind oh, of – you need to encourage that bullying mentality in order to develop the meanest monkey. So uh, if, like, if you train
1: people to be hammers, they're going to look at everything as a fucking exactly. nail, mate. Exactly.
0: And so we're in like 20 – 2020 is like this limbo zone where there's probably World War III kicking off with China. We're about to need our most right-wing fucking gun-toting monkey gorillas with the biggest chest to boot, and they, everyone's going to want them back in about six months. We're going to be like, where are, all those, where are all those fucking knuckleheads that we shunned for the last two years when we went super left? Get them back because we are going to fight China. I'm like, you can't have both. You need a little bit. You need a little bit of bullying. You need a little bit of... I mean, there's bias in everything, and that's kind of you need that to develop well, I, the tip of a spear.
1: I I had – when I re-raised three platoon from scratch, uh, I got given two corporals. Muddy was one and another corporal um, who's still serving, and I had no boss, and they're like, fucking go nuts. Um Taz McGillian was the RSM and we didn't, I didn't bring back initiations or I didn't bring back initiate like hazing. We brought back initiations, but which was you drink out of a fucking, we were the three platoon dogs. You drink out of a dog bowl and that was it, mate. You just, and you walk, you fucking go up, drink a blue beer out of a dog bowl done. And the boys fucking loved it. And everyone got behind it. They want to be initiated. It's a, it is a rite of passage for an 18 year old person we used to do it in tribes where you'd have to go off, do a challenge in the wilderness, you'd come back and you'd become a brave in an Indian tribe or th- there was always a right. Then now there's no right. That's I'm going to get, I turned 18, I'm going to go and get fucking belligerent drunk and then I'm just going to wake up with a hangover and now I'm an adult Yeah, I can do that, all these cool stuff. But there's never, there's no the right.
2: problem of 98% of problems and the other 2%, there's no problems. I can tell you that right now. I've, I've preached that for a long fucking time. There's, <laughs> nothing, there's nothing, What you know, the only thing that eclipses violence is love and at the moment there's a, there's a time for love and there's a time for violence and violent acts are needed um, and, you know, people sleep peacefully in their beds at night because rough men are ready to do rough things to give them that right. You know, I think George Orwell said that So, or along their lines. If, if you're not willing. Nice.
0: You may or may not have put the back in.
2: Yeah, That's it close. yeah it yeah, it was on them lines anyway. You know what I'm talking about. Um but if if yeah. people persist with this whole thing that we don't need violence, we're, we're in for a shock in the next battle that we go into. And it's not and it's not gonna be around the other side of the world, it's gotta be just north. You know, and the last time that happened, World War Two happened, and there's a very there's a very real Factor there that we could have had a Japanese lag hanging over our fucking heads if it wasn't for violent men doing violent things on the track. And if we don't honor that and we don't live up to those expectations that they fought for, we're going to fall down, you know. And I'm a, you know, I, I always said that
1: it's all ebbs and flows, bro. It's, 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 um, it's a cyclic, what do they say? It's hoops and roundabouts. And, uh, uh, there's left and right. You go full left one way, then you go. There is always a counterbalance and and if you go too far left, there's it'll every swing action, around. Reaction, like, and and that's why there's two sides. You can't
2: throw a punch and expect nothing back. Have have
1: the next thing is that is that in order to create a cult or a or an organization, you have to create an us and their mentality. You have to create an us and their mentality. And so turns out that there's there's only according to politics, there's Either you're super right wing conservative or you're super left wing hippie. Like you got to be left or right. You're like, can I just be a moderate? And they're like, nah. Ultimately, we're going to split you down the middle, and there's going to be well, you know left what? Right. I don't conform to any of
2: those identities, and I never will. Um, I'm happy being Coco with my little tribe up here, um, and I'm happy. You know, I'm happy to tell people to get fucked if they need to be told to get fucked. It's <laughs> it served me well in my heart what, what here, I wanna
1: th- so um
2: that's one thing that you know like if you if you're not prepared <laughs> to stand up for yourself and, and speak your mind when it's needed and the last thing I said to all all my medics and stuff when I was leaving I said um, sometimes regardless of rank or relationship, some people just need to be told to get fucked and if you're not prepared to do that then you need to mate, reassess why. Why you're in this job? Why you're you know how you're going to make things better? Why you're going to make it better? And you can't do that by conforming to what's been happening over and over again because sometimes the cycle won't work unless you break the fucking cycle. Uh,
1: organis- organisational culture is a massive thing, and you see it in the army. And 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 there's a there is a currently a issue where you mm-hmm. have to follow orders, right? Cool.
2: Fuck, I'm gonna to have to go. Uh, I've got brain in
1: twelve minutes. You don't have to be. A, you don't have to be a sycophant. Yeah, you don't have to be a sycophant and be on the pole and and like a, a subservient to somebody else. I've been telling you that for years, whim. Keep doing it. You can disagree with. Something. So hey? I've
2: been telling you that for years, and you keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can you can disagree. At what point in the army were you allowed to be like, no, that's
0: not a good idea? Um uh, when, when in order to, to grow some wisdom. We've well, all <laughs> got a hard out and about one percent battery, unfortunately. So if I disappear, I'll I'll have to call you back later. Yeah, Kate, that's right, mate. Goodbye. I've got a
2: roll. Um, I've got a um, I've got one-on-one training A young Folly. He wants to get better at um, sprinting, takeoffs, and stuff. But can I just say, um, huge, like massive gratefulness from me um, to let me come and have a chat to you, boys. You have no idea what that means to me to get recognised like that. I think. Um, number one, I wasn't expecting to be on your podcast because I like listening to shit anyway. I like listening to your podcast. But number two, um, just respect for me for what you're doing and what we're trying to achieve with Swiss 8. And I think I've got so many people that come up to me and contact me on LinkedIn and, you know, this Swiss 8 stuff you're doing, mate, can we get on board? It's like, yeah, man, You just let, let's go to the website. You'll see all the contact details, get in contact with people, um, you know, there's so much good conversation around the product that you've created, Adrian and Max, and um, I, I don't think you understand the impact that you've had on individuals, particularly like myself, uh, who, you know, we we can bandy around and talk about shit and I'll get emotional, but um, you, you have had such a positive impact on me that I'm um, – proud to be an ambassador and I'm grateful that yous have given me that opportunity but I'm also proud to to talk about this stuff when I talk to, to new soldiers and when I talk to old mates you know like getting them across into something that works and that gives them a little bit of meaning back and make them feel worthwhile and that they're loved I think you know if if you keep going on that and the way that you're going you're going to eclipse everything that's come before you and will eclipse everything that comes after you and, uh, you know, thanks for everything and thanks for letting me be part of this because it's a journey that I'm, I, I know is going to go fucking hectic. And people just have to fucking stop and give themselves five minutes to just let it sink in. That, you know, let's have fucking bad days. Let's recognise those fucking bad days, but don't let it fucking dictate who you are and don't let it push you in a direction you don't want to go. You know, I'm, I might be a wounded digger and I might have PTSD but it won't define me as a human being. And people like you are helping me remind myself every day that that's not going to define me, regardless of the bad days. So, you know, cheers for let me be part of your um, program today, lads. And I know I've got to cut it short and hopefully we can do it again and have a bit more of extended chat and tap it on. But, um, you know, it's, it's a privilege to be here talking to you boys and seeing your faces again. And I hope I get the bum tappies at some stage.